podcast lovers rejoice. Meet Pocket Cast, your new favorite podcast app for listening, search, and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control, makes it easier to find and organize podcasts, and offers powerful tools to customize listening. To hear all your favorite shows, download our free app at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. Anna Akhmatova, 1889-1966, was one of the most famous Russian poets of the 20th century and one of few to survive Stalin's terrors, banned at home, though published abroad. Her first husband was executed, their son was jailed as a warning to her, and her third husband um, died in the gulags, and she, she dared not even write down her most subversive work, Requiem, entrusting it, said to, entrust, entrusting it instead to the memory of her friends until a time after her death when Russians might read it. To the Cold War West, she was a symbol of Soviet oppression of creative freedom. In Russia, she was treasured for keeping alive the flame of poetry from before the revolution, the nation's literary heartland, and for doing it so brilliantly. With me to discuss Anna Akhmatova are Catherine Hodgson, professor in Russian at the University of Exeter, Alexandra Harrington, reader in Russian studies at Durham University, and Michael Basker, professor of Russian literature and dean of arts at the University of Bristol. Catherine Hudson, what signs were there, if any, in her childhood that she might become a poet? Well, her father actually teased her from an early age, called her a decadent poetess. And she was showing signs of starting to write her own poetry, aged about 11. So that was around 1900. She showed an early interest in poetry, both French and Russian, and she was also very interested in the poetry of Alexander Pushkin. She was, after all, living in a small town near St Petersburg for most of her childhood, called Sarsko Silo, and that is the place where Pushkin went to school. It's also a place he wrote about a great deal, so that she was walking through the landscape that he wrote about looking at the statues and the buildings and the monuments that he wrote about in his poetry. So in many senses, she was a poet who created herself. She didn't grow up in a very bookish household. I think they had maybe one book of poetry in the house. And So how do you know about Pushkin? Well, she went to school. Oh. She went to the local girls' grammar school and Pushkin was the main canonical poet still is the main canonical poet in Russia so he was part of the furniture really and quickly became part of her internal furniture she was I think very interested in poetry and actually quite isolated because of it apparently in her schooling she was seen as a rather reserved character someone who didn't mix very easily with the girls around her but maybe her interest in poetry also brought the attention quite early on of a young poet also growing up in Sarsky Silo, Nikolai Gumilyov. That was to be her first husband. So this poetry that, that seems to be taken on <coughs> by herself, her father, as we understand from, from what I've read of you, is, was not entirely approving of this. One of the reasons she changed her name because he didn't want his distinguished name to be associated with this activity called poetry. So she turned to Akhmatipa. Um 
But her household was political as well. Both her parents were engaged in political acts. Yes, they were sympathisers of the People's Will movement. What? People's Will. Uh And that was a movement that was trying to push for some kind of revolution in Russia. So basically they were populists in their sympathies. Is it sympathies or did they take any actions? As far as I know, they didn't actually do a great deal. They will have talked and they will have sympathised. And her father did get thrown out of his naval engineering job because someone he was associated with had got hold of some explosives. So he was on the fringes of something that looked like a planned terrorist act. When she said she decided to be a poet at 11, lots of people decided to be a poet at 11, and at the age of 12 and a half, they'd give up. Why did she keep going on? What pushed her along? I think it was something that satisfied some kind of inner need. She seems to have had a rather unsettled character and and not an easy childhood. It wasn't very stable and happy. Uh, She lost one of her sisters quite early on and it seems to have been a family secret, something they didn't talk about very much. Another sister would die later on and the parents split up when Anna was in her early teens so that the family life was quite disrupted. She was also a sleepwalker, which got in the way of her studying at the Smolny Institute in St Petersburg. Apparently it was too disruptive to have her roaming the dormitories. So she was there for a couple of months, maybe, and then sent home. Alexandra Harrington, Alex Harrington, <coughs> what impact did Akhmatova have on the literary world of St Petersburg and vice versa when she got stuck into it in her late teens? Um Quite a large impact. In the first place, she was married to Gomilyov, as Catherine said, who was already involved in modernist circles. When, in how old was she when she married him? Um, it was 1910, so she was... T- um, hold on a minute. She was born 21. in 1921. Thank you very much. My math's not great. He'd been trying um, to marry her for He'd been trying to years. marry her for a long time, kept various suicide attempts in an, um, in order it's to persuade her. It strikes me as not a charming way to make... No, it was, court, it was quite it? typical of the time, though. There was a rather melodramatic yeah. way of behaving that was culturally encoded. Anyway, so he was a poet, so they married, she was, was 21, they're in St Petersburg, yes. yes. And this, this gave her access to Petersburg literary life. And she also watched and waited very carefully. One of the things that's notable about Mahmoudova is that she, she planned her entrance onto the literary stage quite carefully. So she adopted this exotic pseudonym. She Why looked, was it exotic? It sounds a bit un-Russian. It has a Tartar background, so it right. was immediately quite striking. Um, Joseph Brodsky called it her first successful line of poetry. Um, and she she emerged at a point where there was quite a hunger amongst um, what were mostly male modernists for a female poetic star. And she fitted the bill absolutely. She, um, in the first place, looked and behaved like the cultural um, fantasy of a um, female modernist poet. A kind you of have to tell us more about that. How do you look and behave like a fantasy? <laughs> well, she, she was well. The whole atmosphere. <laughs> a bit, a bit of detail would be great yeah, here. Well, yeah. the whole atmosphere had been very much um, influenced by the poetry of Alexander Bloch, who was Russia's greatest poet at this point, and um, the women in his poetry are very ephemeral beauties who are unattainable um, rather floaty and um, Akhmatova was very striking physically, she behaved in a very aristocratic, restrained way, she planned her poetry recitals carefully. I still haven't got the detail Well, she she looked like a kind of femme fatale figure, she Ah. seemed to embody this uh, sort of ideal of female beauty Um, 
and she traded very much on that and her poetry she um she often arranges her poems around her own persona so that the um, speaker of the poems looks like Akhmatova. She seems to occupy the same cultural milieu and she describes her love affairs and so on in a very restrained way. So It was a, sorry, it was a love poetry that got the attention of quite a lot yeah. of readers. So quite a lot on these first two or three volumes, which yeah. are uh, not very long. She established a name for herself. Now you say strategic, most mm. poets are strategic, a lot yeah, of writers are strategic, absolutely. that's nothing much no. new about that. But what was, what was it about her poetry that got hold of them? I think two things, a sort of double effect. So the first is that um, she was able to appeal to a growing mass readership because her poetry is very concrete. It, um, it um, she describes very successfully the details of the material world around her. She uses little impressionistic details. One pond, um, in one poem, a pond, the algae on the pond is described as like brocade. In another one, there's a small grey cloud in the sky that's like a stretched out squirrel skin. So she's very good at these um, concrete little details. And then um, she also describes love in a particular way. So lots of poets wrote about love, lots of female poets wrote about love, but she does it with a kind of restraint and almost a sort of analytical, objective manner that was strikingly different. Um, yeah, so for instance, one of her very famous early poems is a poem called A Song of the Last Meeting. It was written in 1911. It's almost clichéd now, it's so famous. But what she does is, rather than describing the um, speaker's feelings in a kind of directly, um, she hones in on a small but telling gesture that um, belies the speaker's sort of surface calm. And as she pulls the glove for her left hand onto her right hand, and it's just these little micro So how does that, what does that signify why is that so significant? Because what it allowed people to do was read into the gesture to um, see what emotion there was underneath. So what so do you read into her, pulling the wrong glove onto the right hand? A sort of confusion and emotional shock. We know from the title that it's about a last meeting. Um, and so it's very much actually built on the way in which 19th century psychological prose operated, little gestures that revealed the psychology and emotions of characters. And Akhmatova kind of imports this into poetry. And it, and it gave readers a... Um, it sort of provoked that active interest. They were um, able to um, read the poems for details, try and make links. She's very, very condensed, and so they could fill in gaps for themselves. Michael Basker, um, we're going to go into a roller coaster of the first half of the 20th century now, the, the, the two wars, the revolution, the purges, and she's involved in a lot of that. But let's start with the First World War. Yeah. How did she react to that? She reacted as though it was great cataclysmic dramatic event and it strikes me that she was almost looking for a theme at that stage in her work so as Alex says she perfected these miniature love poetry this miniature love poetry dramatic scenes in effect which became more and more condensed and small gestures on behalf of the participants would give you an insight in, into the, the state of mind the relationship between them so there was evidence upon which to build for the reader to build a narrative if you like they're immensely popular, widely imitated, but by 1914 she got so good at them that cynically it wasn't quite clear where she was going to end next. And and they were very straightforwardly written, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely. easy to follow now in, in translation, yep. simple lines, direct, and so on. Yes, they read like small dramatic scenes with yes. dialogue. They're not overtly poetic, almost. The words, the conjunctions that pull the lines together tend to be causal because this happened that happened 
And that was quite unpoetic in people's minds. But she perfected this. She also read about writing poetry and where poetry comes from. There was quite a lot to do with the interplay between poetry and love. Pushkin had a great line in, 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 in Yevgeny Onegin, his novel. Um, love disappeared, the muse came in, and my dark mind became clarified. Bad translation, but that's what Pushkin's about. And there's something about Irakmata as well, that's analysing the emotion after the event. But even so, there were limits to that miniature form. The First World War came along, and she wrote a series of poems on the advent of war. There was one called 19 July 1914, which is the day that Russia declared war. And it begins by saying, we grew older by 100 years, and it happened in a single hour. So there's a sense of transition from the 19th century to a different world, the true 20th century, she called it in Poem Without a Hero, which was a late masterpiece. And that poem, 19th of July, 1914, ends with her saying that the Almighty had ordained that I should clear my mind of the memories of songs and passions and become the grim book of stormy news. So her job was to record the tribulation of the people. You brought in the Almighty, she was a religious person. It's hard to say how religious well, she you was. Brought it in. I put it in, it's in the poetry. Um, it's very difficult to link the persona of the poems with the real Achmatova throughout the early period. So she used a lot of religious imagery. How devout she was, how devout she was, I struggle to say even now. It's a powerful religious and nationalistic image in that poem. She was in a circle, a tight circle in mm. St. Petersburg, and we know some of the writers' names to this day. It was influential. Uh, it was a top circle, as it were. Yeah. Uh, she was accepted there and acclaimed there. Can you just give us a very brief uh, sketch of that lot? OK. So, as Alex said, the, the leading writer before Achmatova and her circle came along was Alexander Bloch, and he was a symbolist. And essentially, the symbolists were looking beyond this world to something revelatory beyond, to a greater existence, a, a more perfect reality than that which we experience in the here and now. And Akhmatova and her husband Gumilyov and also Mandelstam, who was the other great Russian poet of the 20th century, were part of a small group that came together gradually through the 1910s. They call themselves Acmeists. And Acmeists were meant to be the pinnacle of creation. What they had in mind is that they would take the achievements of the symbolists, but develop them further and develop them back into an acceptance of this world, a concentration on this life as the only one we've got, and an attempt to find the f and to celebrate the fullness of existence in this life. And the example used is that for them a rose was a rose. It wasn't a significant, it didn't signify all sorts of hundreds of other things. It was the flower there in front of your eyes. That's the, the make Gradetsky used that phrase in his Acme's Manifesto. Yeah. It says something of what they're about. But to me, only a small bit of what they're about, because to the Acme, the rose was a flower with petals and thorns, what have you, and colour and scent. But it was also a symbol of divine love, which had been for the symbolists. So they try to integrate all these things together to produce a more complex poetry about the human condition and the human cultural heritage. Thank you very much. Catherine, Catherine Hodgson. Um, she never emigrated. Others did. She had a chance to. Why did she stay in Russia when she was banned and uh, denigrated and so on? That seems like a, a very good question to ask because when you're living in a country and finding it increasingly difficult to publish, 
and people are writing things about you in the press. Well, first of all, let's just tell the listeners, yeah. why, why was she finding it increasingly difficult to publish? She didn't fit. She wasn't she someone... She didn't fit what? She didn't fit the new revolutionary culture. So she wasn't a poet who was writing hymns about the triumphant onward march of the workers and the glorious future that was coming. She didn't want to join in that kind of celebration of something she didn't see as something to celebrate. So for her, the revolution was a bit like the war, a massive national catastrophe. So this was not a cause for celebration. This was a cause for sober reflection and endurance, but definitely not joyful embracing of events. She was unofficially banned. Uh, she lived in great poverty, so she still wouldn't leave. She wouldn't leave. And if you look at some of her poems from that early post-revolutionary period, you can see that she is stating quite clearly that she feels it's her moral duty, actually, to remain in the country, even amidst all the suffering, the terror, the civil war, that the people who have emigrated are actually seen as people who've taken a wrong path. There's one poem, for example, she wrote in, um, I think, 1922, about a voice, a voice that she heard summoning her to leave Russia forever, take on a new name. And she actually says in that poem, I blocked out this voice with my ears. And she calls what this voice was saying to her unworthy speech. And, of course, a lot of the people, as you said, that she knew did leave. And some of them left fully expecting her to follow them. But she made what you can see in her poetry as a conscious decision to commit herself to her country, not to run away. But um, Alex Harrington, she, one of her masterpieces is the poem Requiem. Now, can, first of all, when did she write that? She wrote it, well, it's actually not a one continuous piece, so it's no, a series of poems. No, but when did she start to write it? I she started to, to write it in 1935. Right, so... Um, can you tell us how this poem was written? Because it's as interesting uh, how it was written and transferred into eventually the public domain. Mm. Not as interesting, but it's also interesting uh, as the poem itself. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's such a canonical piece of writing is the story of its inception and yeah, distribution. So it, um, she started writing it in 1935. It was um, so dangerous. She, it's assembled of different pieces, as I said. So in fact, it, it, they extend to 1961, which is when she appended an epigraph to it. So it has a long history. But the central poems in it were all written between 35 and 45 and too dangerous for her to keep a written copy. So what's it about? Why is it dangerous? Because it's about the um, purges at the end of the 1930s um, and about Ahmatova's own biographical experience of standing in prison queues, um, which people did. They extended across Leningrad um, and people would wait in them to find out news of a loved one or hand over a parcel or, in the worst circumstances, have that parcel refused, which indicated that something horrible had happened. Um, and so her poems describe... They and she was queuing to hand a parcel to her son. Absolutely, And the doors was. never opened for her. Yeah, absolutely. Right. 
And so the cycle was inspired by that experience. Um, the different poems of it chart a speaker's... Um, they sketch out a narrative and they chart the speaker's kind of um, emotional breakdown at the arrest and then the sentencing and ultimately the execution of her son. It's very powerful, um, very simply written, but very dangerous. And therefore she didn't write it down. And the way in which it was preserved initially was in the memories of a few trusted friends who um, would come to Ahmatova's apartment. She'd scribble down lines on a scrap of paper for fear of um, surveillance. They wouldn't be uttered aloud. And while she chatted innocuously about the weather or something else, the friend would memorise the lines and then the scrap of paper would be burnt. And so the way in which it was um, preserved for quite some time was in a very secret, furtive way. I understand there are about ten of these friends. When did they get together to put the poem together? Um, well, Akhmatova was able to do that herself, she, in fact. She, of yeah. course, she had the whole thing. Um, in, although that, of course, wasn't, there was no guarantee of yeah. that. But when, um, during the thaw, when it became um, clear that it might be possible at some point um, to publish or to publish Requiem or at least to circulate it in Samizdat, um, she started to assemble what was the final text and indeed added to it at that point. So she um, introduces framing texts which explain the poem's significance, its um, biographical um, origins and um, and emphasise in an epigraph, actually this relates to what Catherine was saying, that, that she was there where her people were. She speaks like a kind of monarch, where her people were when this happened. Ten people's quite a lot in the Sabaean society, isn't it? How mm -hmm. did they keep it dark? Um, well, she picked the right people because often, actually, you're right. But wasn't there a saying that in a group of ten there would always be one informer? So it was a dangerous. Well, Judas, that was yeah, a group of twelve, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And she, so she picked, she picked the right people quite clearly. I mean, um, Mandelstam, who Mike mentioned, um, is an example of a poet who apparently quite deliberately recited an equally dangerous poem um, to a number of people and was informed upon. So um, it was risky, even even that. Ahmatov actually was known to be very careful about naming names. So if you read the record of meetings with Ahmatova that Lydia Trukovskaya wrote, she makes a point of saying that Ahmatova, when she was talking about other people, never said their names. So she just said, a woman said to me, mm. so that names didn't get spread, so that made it safer. Michael, can we go into this uh, this wonderful poem in a bit more detail? How autobiographical is it, or why does it seem autobiographical? Yeah. Perhaps you could read a little bit in Russian to delight our listeners. I'll have a go at a little bit in Russian. Give me a second. So I'll begin with the question about how autobiographical yeah. or otherwise it is, which is a complicated one, as it often is with Akhmatova. There's a prose forward which describes her standing in the prison queues in Leningrad for 17 months to hand the package to her son along with other women. And that prose description says that at one point, someone in the queues identified me. She uses the police word for identification. And at that point, she says, someone else in the crowd broke, broke free from the stupor that we were all in in those days and whispered into my ear, because we all whispered, can you describe this? And I said, I can. And then something like a smile flitted across what had once been her face which is a tremendously moving thing it's to do with a sense of mission again but partly also it identifies Akhmatov as one who is absolutely with the, the women she writes about going through that suffering as a personal pilgrimage is the way that one of her biographers described this there's then a sequence of ten short 
lyric poems with a female persona, a lyric heroine, if you like, in each of them. And it's not absolutely clear that any more than it is in the early love poetry, whether this is really Ahmadur or not. It's quite difficult in some ways to see Ahmadur as the persona behind them all because um, she's talking in different places, uh, there were different settings, different experiences. What's it about? What's but saying? what it's about is the breakdown of personality. And so whether it's Ahmadur or not doesn't really matter because everyone's personality is compromised, they lose integrity. In the end, they lose a sense of self. She says, I can't even see... I can't. This can't be me. The suffering is too great for me to bear. It must be someone else. Could you read it a little bit and tell us what you're yeah. reading after you've read it? So um, I'll read a little bit from... So she snaps out of this sense of loss of self in two epilogues, which are really very powerful. And the second epilogue has Ahmatova describing and judging what's going on bit in Russian, she says, A jeste kakdanimud vet istranje, vas dvignut zadume pamitnik mnie, saglasi na ete daju teržistvo, no tolko su slovjem ni stavit jivo, ni okla more, gdje jaradi las, pasljedni smorem azorna svejas, ni psarskem sadu uzavjetne pnje, gdje tjen bezutješni išit mnje, a zdjejs, gdje stajali atristi časov, и где для меня не открыли засов, за то, что весь смерти блаженный боюсь, забыть громкание черных мороз, забыть, как по хлопала дверь, и выла старуха, как раненый зверь. And I could go on, but I won't, that's more than enough. What's she saying? So she's saying there that she speaks for the millions of people, of her own people. And if at some stage in the future they think of constructing a monument to her, she agrees to that, but it must no longer be by the sea where she was born or in Sarskisi Law where she grew up and where there's an inconsolable shadow still looking for her, but where she stood in the prison queues for 17 months because she fears of forgetting even in death the ordeal that people have gone through. So there's a sacrifice of the ordinary human self and her own personal emotional experience in order to concentrate and focus on the horror they've gone through. Catherine Hodgson, when did the Requiem get out among its Russian readers and be taken up in such a fond and devout way? It got out in the 60s, not in print. So it was circulated in manuscript form. And so people got to know it. There was an attempt made, actually, to publish it in the celebrated literary journal Novi Mir, New World, in 1962. That was around the time when things were starting to come out. So, for example, Solzhenitsyn's story, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, came out in the same journal. So there were hopes that this could be published, but it came to nothing in the end. So its first print publication happened in Munich in 1963. It was prefaced with a note saying that it was published without the author's knowledge or consent. And how did the Russian public get hold of it? We're in Munich, let's get back to Russia. How did you get there? Did they send copies back to Russia and was it around then? Copies will have come back. Print copies will have come back from abroad. That was quite a common thing to have mm. publications from abroad being ferried back in. But the, the main way that the text would have been transmitted in the 60s would have been in typed copies. So right. self-published, samizdat, as it's called. Yes. 
Um, we come to the second, the great patriotic war now. It's a bit of a roller coaster, and she's part of. She's on the roller coaster. What was her response to that? Um, it, not unlike her response to the First World War, in that she um, had a very dignified, patriotic stance. She'd not been published, as we've said. She um, she didn't start publishing from the ban in twenty five between nineteen twenty five and nineteen forty. She didn't publish. Well, she didn't publish years. at all during that time. Um, and then she applied to the um, the writers' union, became a member of it. Um, she was a book was published in 1940 by her but withdrawn immediately because Stalin objected to one poem that had actually been written much earlier but he thought applied to his regime Um, but when the war started it became clear that she was a figure who could actually be very useful for boosting morale Um, and one of the first things she did was she gave a radio address in besieged Leningrad in the early months of the siege to she was invited to give an address to the women of Leningrad and she gives a very patriotic rousing speech she um, says this is the city of um, um, Peter the Great of Lenin of Pushkin of Dostoevsky and Bloch Um, she emphasizes her own ties with it and then she describes the heroism of the women of Leningrad who are um, protecting the city and says you know with women like these um, the city will never be taken and this was broadcast to the whole nation she was a figure people remembered despite her silence so it had an immense effect and then she wrote a, probably her most famous poem of um, World War Two was um, written in um, 1942 while she was in evacuation in Tashkent. It's called Courage, and it was published in Pravda. Um, it describes um, the hour of courage striking on our clocks. Um, courage will not abandon us. And then it ends um, saying, we will um, preserve you, Russian speech, mighty Russian word, and pass you on safe from captivity. Michael Muscat, is it about this time she writes in praise of Stalin? No, she wrote in praise of Stalin later on in the right. 1950s. So the next phase, if you like, is what happened after the war. As, as I said, she was evacuated to Tashkent for most of the war. She came back to Moscow and then Leningrad in 1944. It was very popular there. She gave speeches again, poetry readings. She was applauded, standing ovations. But in 1946, there was a new crackdown, cultural crackdown in general in the Soviet Union after the war. And Akhmatova and the prose writer Mikhail Zorshinka were singled out for a particular attack in 1946. And Akhmatova thought that was connected to another event in her life, a visit from Sir Isaiah Berlin, who came to see her as a member of the British Embassy at the end of 1945. May may not have been the case. That seemed to that seemed to that seemed to identify as somebody who's collaborating with the enemy. It's too long a story that That Randolph Churchill behaving like a buffoon, indeed, uh, uh, and just a buffoon. We've got these buffoons, haven't we? Uh, And then he he, was a buffoon, and he almost betrayed her, and almost sent her to her death, looking for caviar, idiot. Right. Um, So she's there after the war. I went before my horse to market with the Stalin thing. But so she's after, and she's banned after the war. Why is that? After all these patriotic speeches and so on and so forth. As I say, she thought it was connected to these personal things that she'd been consorting with, some of Berlin, British spy. She saw that as beginning the Cold War. I think it's much simpler than that. I think that it's simply that the Soviet regime cracked down again after the relative cultural relaxation during the war years and they're back to the tactics they used in the 1920s which to pick on some of the most prominent figures around you attack them in public and that frightens everyone else into submission 
And Ahmad was one of those. It might surprise people. Sorry, can I just ask Catherine this? Well, you, if you want, but I, I was just going to say she was such a symbol of pre-revolutionary culture yeah. that she was an obvious target. Yeah. She symbolised everything the regime. It still didn't. might be surprising some listeners that the full force of this regime is brought against a few poets, mm. isn't yeah. it? So, but still, Catherine, um, she's writing. She's writing away banned again. She was a second marriage is very unsuccessful, or very unhappy, great poverty. Uh, and, and on she goes at a certain stage they don't know what to make of her so someone calls her a non and a harlot there's great insults uh, possibly a non and a harlot insults aimed at her um, there's this poem poem uh, without a hero can you tell us it's a long and complex work but it's important for her what is the nub of that right okay this is quite difficult to summarise in a few sentences but it, it was a piece that she started to write in 1940 and then seems to have been, at intervals, possessed by. So she, she actually describes it as, as an external sort of visitation that came to her at the end of 1940. It's in three parts. The first part is set on New Year's Eve in 1940. It's a poet alone sitting with candles in a room full of mirrors and into the room come a crowd of New Year's revellers from 1913, none of whom are alive. So the past and the present merge together and it's a meeting with her former associates, her friends, even her former self. So that's the beginning of it and it recounts a number of times and in varying amounts of detail, an incident which is a suicide, so perhaps there's a link back to Gumilyov's attempted suicide and that kind of melodramatic behaviour that Alex was talking about earlier. So a young poet committed suicide in 1913 because he was disappointed in love. And that incident is the core of the first part, which is called 1913. The second part is... I'm afraid we'll yeah. have to speed up a little okay. bit, if you don't mind. Right. I know there's lots of parts, yeah, but there, can there you is, just give yes. us a quick summary of it? OK, so it's an explanation, really. The poet speaking to editor, the editor is baffled by this incomprehensible story about 1913, and what is given there is an explanation that isn't really an explanation. It's more and more mystifications and enigmas and clues. And the final part is set in 1942 in Leningrad. The poet's voice speaking from evacuation in Tashkent reflects on her city, on the past, and on the way that Russia, in 1941, headed east to escape from the war, while Russia from the east came west to save Moscow, and that is the point at which the poem ends. Michael, did this poem again not come out into, into Russia until the 60s? It didn't come out of Russia until the 60s, that's right. Yeah. And so we're, we're, um, she's being allowed to survive. Yeah. And, um, and, and then we have this, the Stalin maker's entrance about now. Right, right. So yeah. is it, she, she will surprise some listeners after all this revolutionary activity with this group of, who were shot, executed, two of her husbands, and so on. Um, was there some link with Stalin? I'm not talking about anything. Uh, anything ridiculous but hmm. I've read in some of your notes that he, he had written poetry himself and he rather admired her he 
was a poet before he became a gangster and a revolutionary. Yes, so he was a published poet in his youth. And he clearly had an interest in the power of words and in poetry. And he liked playing the dark genius behind why, Russian literature to some extent. Why did so, she write in praise of him? She wrote in praise of him briefly in 1951-52 because her son was rearrested, and she thought that the only way of possibly saving his life at that stage was finally to do what she'd not done for 40 years and write in praise of the regime. Whether it really worked or not is difficult to say, but her son survived the camps and was released three years after Stalin's death in 1956. But she was very surprised that she survived herself at all. She wrote poems about it, about coming back from the grave many times. Um, and people around her disappeared. They began disappearing from 1921, when Gumilyov was shot, her first husband. And she felt complicit in that in many ways. But she and Boris Pasternak, and until he died in 1914, Mikhail Bulgakov, the author of Master Margarita, survived against the odds. And it seems pretty clear that Stalin himself wanted these people to survive. He kept tabs on what they were doing, but must have decreed they shouldn't be put to death. Can you give us, I don't know, it's a difficult thing to say, can you give us some idea uh, of the life she was leading? We talk about her second husband in mm. poverty, then she moved in with another couple and there was a menage a trois mm. going on with very little, little money, furtive, under surveillance. How is she making, how's she making, how's she, how's she making a living? Simple things like that. Oh, well, as you say, she had a, a difficult life and this involved at one point um, living with her um, common-law husband and his wife and their daughter. Um, she was quite itinerant at various points. And poor, yeah, she received a state pension for some of the time. She also earned money from um, translation. She was a prolific translator. She's translated um, from a great many languages using um, a prose version in Russian. Um, she also um, wrote um, articles on Pushkin. She helped the various men in her life with their own work. So it was a fairly hand-to-mouth existence. She sometimes received um, money from friends. Um, so very erratic income, um, mostly translation, though. Um, activity she described as like eating your own brain, but she was extremely good at it. <laughs> we mentioned Isaiah Berlin. He was an Oxford don. Um, great, great intellectual in in this country, and went across, spoke Russian among other languages. Went across uh, to Russia and and saw her in her flat. And his cover was blown by Churchill's son. Um, then she was invited to Oxford to get an honorary degree uh, and else, and she was allowed to go, and the, and therefore they thought she would come back. So what was that about? By that time, the Soviet regime had actually started to acknowledge Akhmatova as a world class poet. They were actually getting to admit they were very proud of her. So she had become a cultural capital for them, really. So it would have been embarrassing not to let her go and collect the degree. Um, she herself was quite offended by the fact that they wouldn't give her her train ticket to leave the country until just before she left, because she, she declared, you know, why are you worried, you know, it's not as though I'm not going to come back. She She was very clear that she was going to visit and she was going to come home again. When she did go to Oxford, what, what she remembered to one of her friends about it was that she spent her time, as she said, correcting people's dissertations. <laughs> so she was always very concerned about her reputation, mm. versions of her biography, what people were saying about her in Russia, of course, and abroad. 
So she was actually frequently incensed by what found its way to her, what emigres were writing about her biographical accounts that she dismissed as inaccurate and biased and wrong. There wasn't. There were. There are. There are views in in, in Russia. Or there were against her. She. We have. We've been presenting her. You all have been. Some of you hugely admire, great poet, and so on and so forth. Uh, but there was a view that she mythologized herself. Can you tell me what what they found against her? Those that did. Um, well, at its extreme version, because some of this came from quite sensible scholarly analyses that pointed out that she constructed herself and she was keen to control representations and so on, as Catherine said, but at its extreme, there were two books published by a popular writer called Tamara Kataeva in 2007 and 2011 with the provocative titles Antiochmatova and then Abolition from Slavery, Antiochmatova too. The, abolition, the slavery being the obligation to venerate Achmatova, it's this great moral genius. And the, the Charges against her sort of verge from quite astute, so pointing out that she constructed herself, that she was quite controlling about the kind of information that she wanted disseminate, disseminated, even to the point of dictating passages of biography and so on, um, to the completely absurd. So the charge that she wasn't, she didn't actually suffer at all. The 1946 resolution against her, the ban was was nothing. It wasn't serious. Um, to the kind of comical, pointing out that the only husbands she lost were actually someone else's and not her own, which is technically true. <laughs> Um, but it's the kind of backlash that I think comes from the fact that she was such an important cultural figure. It's inevitable almost. But, and finally, um, she emerged, she, that has been shrugged off. She's emerged mm. as a very great poet indeed, not only in terms of Russia, but in terms of world poetry. Is that right, Michael? I'm sure that's right, yes. She's got an immense ability to generalise about human experience, to transform experience into poetry. And it's not simply the experience and the awful experience she lived through as well as the simple ones at the beginning of her life, it's the poetry she turns it into that makes it last. And that vindicates what she said throughout her life. She talked repeatedly about poetry being power and poetry outliving those around her. Um, that's what's happened with her verse, I think, to do it very... Well, thank you all very much. I've rushed it along because there's so much to say, but she, it is marvellous to have talked about her. Thanks very much, Alexandra Harrington, Catherine Hodgson and Michael Basker. Next week, we'll be discussing the life and political philosophy of Cicero. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Rushed, as you said. Yeah, no, you start, feel I mean, like you can't... There's a lot more that we've yes. already said. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Was there anything massive that uh, we didn't cover? I don't know about massive. I mean, we could have given much more coverage to anything. Um, there were inter- things that would interest listeners, perhaps, about her biography that we didn't mention. Yes. For instance, she knew Modigliani, the artist, um, when they were both young, before they were famous, and wrote a fantastic memoir of him. Um, and she was drawn by where him. Did she yeah. where did and she, she was drawn by him um, in Paris. Um, in the only trip she made abroad, actually, in some fifty years. So she travelled in nineteen ten, eleven, twelve, eleven, twelve, maybe, yeah. um, and met Modigliani when neither of them were famous. Um, it does appear that her interests in him and the memoir were piqued by the discovery that he was famous. Um, but they had what was, must have been an affair. There are nude um, yes. drawings um, by Modigliani of Achmatova. Well, I think the people who listen to the programme will be very annoyed that that wasn't in the programme. Well, there we go. I've <laughs> said it keeps now. happening. <laughs> but there's lots of little episodes in the biography that she came, she kept coming back to. Mm. So Alex is right about her constructing a biography. Um, there were turning points, simple years of history that she came back to. 1921 was a big one where mm. Alexander Bloch died, 
Gumadiol was executed. And another one was 1913, with the beginning yes. of the war, then 1914. She came coming back to these yes. single points. And, as and she noted 1914 as, as the beginning of the real 20th century. That's what she calls it in Poem Without a Hero. So yeah, the, she, at the end of 1913, it's like the passing of an era. These are ghosts that come into Poem Without a Hero that are from an, an obsolescent era. There's something that she's mm. actually looking back on and condemning and separating herself from. And it's really unusual in Russian culture to see the First World War as a watershed moment. It's, that was so yeah. much subsumed into revolutionary history. And, and that's the really interesting thing about her, that she identifies that point. Yes. So it's actually bizarre... But we've those, just been having yeah. the, the centenary of the 1917 revolutions and Akhmatova doesn't elevate that date particularly. She almost stopped writing, didn't she? She wrote very little between 1918 and 1920. Mm. But the ghost is an interesting thing as well. So by 1923, she wrote a poem on New Year 1923, the ghosts of seven people come to visit a New Year party and you only realise two-thirds of the way through the poem that the other guests of the party are already dead. Mm. Yeah. It's quite an eerie thing. It's a mm. short lyric. But this sense that the people, the voice of the past, were speaking through her is something that goes through a lot of the poetry that she wrote from then onwards, including Poem Without a Hero. Mm. Poem Without a Hero, we could, you could, we could have had a whole programme on, but it, 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 it's less well-known than Requiem, um, than Requiem, partly because Requiem's such a kind of clear moral statement and Poem Without a Hero is, is more complex and it perhaps relies a bit more knowledge, although I think that can be overplayed of, of Russian culture and Russian literature. But it's a fantastic piece of writing and it's, it's very unlike other things that she wrote and she placed enormous emphasis on it. She saw it as the sort of kind of crowning glory of her career. And as Catherine said, it was her obsession for about 25 years, writing this um, long piece of work. So it, it's well worth reading. It's very densely haven't. elusive. So scholars have picked over it many, many times to say, this, oh, that's Pushkin, that's Pasternak, that's Mandelstam, that's Akhmatova from when she was younger. And she also recalled that um, some of the things she put in it were borrowed from things people said. For example, there's the um, introductory bit, the bit in capital letters saying that she's looking down from the year 1940 as if from a high tower. And this is based on something somebody said when they heard her recite an early version of the 1913 part of the poem who actually said this is like looking back on the past as if from a high tower, and Ahmadova wove that one straight in. Yeah. But as always, she's trying to make sense of what's going on. She's recording it. There's nostalgia and there's guilt and an attempt to understand how what happened in 1913 led to what happened in the Soviet era. Did she um, overemphasise her own importance to these great events, Michael? Mm. You're saying yes. Yes. Mm. In what way? She was very interested in the way that her own life intersected with history. Mm. And she would generalise from that intersection, which is what poetry and poets do in any case. But that did lead to a fairly biased view of history nonetheless. The classic example is her meeting with Isaiah Berlin yeah. as having provoked the Cold yeah. War. Yes. So <laughs> nothing to do with anything else. It was that encounter. Um, but it, it's it's a legitimate thing for a poet in those circumstances to do in the sense that she saw herself as the living representative of a culture that had been stamped out and lost. Um, so it's about her, but it's also about herself as representing something bigger. But she definitely places herself yeah. at the epicentre. Yeah. Um, yeah. And tries to locate other people 
So she, she, you know, put other writers in their places. For example, she was very dismissive of Tolstoy. She thought his attitude to women was disgraceful. And she particularly disliked Chekhov and didn't mind who she told about that. She, she would repeat her line about Chekhov. What was her, what was her line against Chekhov? Nothing ever happened. There was no drama. Oh, God, did she think that? She did. How could she be so mistaken? I wonder if it's an anxiety of influence, though. That's been argued, because yes. actually some of her early poems yeah. are very Chekhovian in the little snatches of dialogue and the sort of miscommunications and the representations of kind of ordinary girls' lives, you know. Mm. I think the producer's about to interrupt us. I think he is. <laughs> tea, or f- tea or coffee, but also, what was it Randolph Churchill did? Was <laughs> he went to her apartment and yelled out, Isaiah yeah. Berlin, you're in there, will you come and translate me so they can get me some caviar? Mm. I think he wanted it put on ice. He wanted yeah. it put on ice yeah. for the yes, story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like tea or coffee. I'd love a coffee, please. Tea for me, too. Black tea. Thank you. Black tea. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Oh, hey. Fancy meeting you here. I'm Sindhu V, and if you enjoyed that, why not let Radio 4's Comedy of the Week podcast into your feed? I host the podcast, and here's what happens. I bring you comedy, fresh out of Radio 4's Funny Factory. Sometimes I bring you interviews with writers and performers, and a little bit of my take on the world and what's going on. Just search for Comedy of the Week on your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and it'll be available for you every Monday morning.